My check, my check, one, two. We this is the second episode of the Sean Soapbox, and here with me I have Dr. Stephen Ferguson. Thank you so much for having me. So, Dr. Stephen Ferguson, could you break down like your accomplishments? Basically, like why people should listen to you. <laughs> I mean, I would listen to you anyway, but it's just like just break it down for the people. Like, like you know, this yeah. is why you should listen. Uh, you to want me. my academic credentials, huh? Uh, so I went to undergrad at, uh, University of Missouri in Columbia, and I, uh, did, uh, philosophy and history as my majors. And mm-hmm. then I had a minor in black studies, uh, University of Kansas for my graduate work. And that was in philosophy. Um, and my main areas are, uh, political philosophy, Marxism, and also I do what could generally be called history of philosophy but I look at the history of black philosophers, primarily from 1865 till now. Okay. So. What started your journey into philosophy? Um, to be honest, uh, it came out of the fact that I was searching for particular answers as a political activist. Mm. Um, I was just trying to figure out a way to pull all of that together. Um, mm. And so one of the first books that I read was uh, Nkrumah's Consciousism. And Kwame Nkrumah was uh, the leader of uh, Ghana in Africa. He led the uh, liberation movement there. So they gained their independence in 57. Um, and Nkrumah was chain- trained as a philosopher. And when you read Consciousism, what Nkrumah makes very clear is that thought without practice is empty and practice without thought is blind. And so Nkrumah helped me understand that you just couldn't have blind action in terms of being an activist, but you needed some kind of theory behind understanding why you're being activist. So like kind of like a praxis. Like, right. Right. So right. like with like with activism specifically, like what are your thoughts on like student activism, especially when we're as undergrad, especially undergrad activism, because we're just by like by the nature of the situation circumstance, mm-hmm. we're just getting introduced to a lot of concepts and different right. things like that. So a lot of activism is, I wouldn't say unfocused, but mm-hmm. it isn't as it's not based on a specific theory. Right. So therefore, a lot of actions don't always align. Right. So like, what are your thoughts on like the because like. It's very subclinical. Mm-hmm. Every four years, a new different type right. of activism uh, uh, plays out and is not a lot of continuity. Right. And so, like, my question to you is just, like, how does that impact the way the politics of the university, not NC State, but, like, right. just the politics of the university as a setting? Right. That was one of the first things I had to learn as a student activist at, at Mizzou was that, administrators became very adept at understanding that four-year cycle. So they could wait you out in terms of your political demands or whatnot. And so part of what I came to see is that you need to start building a tradition basically every year of this is what we want, this is what, what, what we're demanding, and begin to bring new people in every year. Um, the problem is is that – I think in the last 20 years is that 
students wants, what they come to college for, has changed. And so as students become increasingly concerned only with careerism, then these other goals about increasing the number of black students on campus, um, increasing the resources that are available to black students, increasing the number of black faculty and staff people, um, all of those issues become secondary Hmm. because you're just here for yourself. You're not thinking about making it better for who comes after you. Hmm. And so that's one problem. The other problem is that you don't have a a culture of, for lack of a better way to frame it, a culture of critical discourse. So what made my time different in undergrad and in previous generations was we developed um, study groups. So while we had people who were active in various organizations, we also had study groups in which we were reading uh, Kwame Nkrumah, you know, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, um, Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. We were reading all these things on campus, plus uh, we were reading them in certain classes. And so we weren't, the difference, I think, in this context is that we weren't just reading a portion of one book. We were reading, we might have been reading five books in one class. Right. And in addition to those five books we were reading in class, we were getting out together outside of class to have serious discussion about those books. Um, and it, it was those discussions sometimes were spontaneous, but sometimes they were organized also. So, you know, I might wake up on a Saturday morning and go hang out at my friend's house and we would just be talking about a particular theme that we read that morning. So it was a, a different culture in that sense. Um, that I don't get the sense that it's we're in that time now that you have the same habits of reading and the investment in the knowledge. But that's also a question of things have changed culturally in terms of what people's cultural investments are. I mean, people are more consumed with um, tweeting something on social media than having that kind of larger discussion about what you want. Right, because we're the way we do discourse is kind of like That's the problem, right? Versus like not having the discourse. Because the I always say like it's not that people are not talking to each other; it's right. how they're talking to right, each other. Exactly. Because we can very get caught up. People say our bubbles, but the thing is, though, I see the other side. Right. Whether I want to engage with it or not, and how I engage right. with it is the very critical thing. Right. If I hear uh, a call, because like we like to break down big ideas into hashtags. Right. Black Lives Matter, for instance. Right. There's a lot of ideas of like liberation and like uh, abolishing certain practices like uh, bail, uh, like imbalancing, like with the bail system and stuff like right. that. That's built into that hashtag, but nobody interacts with that part right. because it's a hashtag. Right. Anybody could put up a hashtag saying Black Lives Matter and it's just like, well, what does that post say? What is right. contributing to the discourse? And not everybody sees. Nobody goes to the hashtag and like goes through like what's being said about it. Exactly. Unless you're a journalist and trying to document everything. And even then people are not reading that article about it. The only time they'll interact with a black lives matter thing is like, if it's like a protest or what a lot of the corporate media will make you think is a riot. when right. It's really just a protest. Right. And so 
that's the problem is like how the functioning of our communication systems and how right. it's working against us as people and having discourse. Right. Because that's a that's a larger problem just in all communities. But the the way specifically hits a black community is because is how when there is an issue, there's not a way to discuss it in a very deep way. Right. And have people engage in that deeper thinking. Right. It's all very service level. Yeah. I agree 100%. I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting. If you look at the Black Panther Party, they were kids. You know, Huey Newton and those guys were kids by by our our today's standards. They were 19, 20, 25-year-old kids. But if you look in terms of the internal discussions that they were having, you could look at, you know, someone like an Eldridge Cleaver who had published a book, mm. Souls on Ice. Now, I'm not saying the, it was a great book, but I'm <laughs> saying he published a book. Huey Newton was, for all intents and purposes, an intellectual of sorts. Um, and then think about someone like a George Jackson, who would later go on to do um, uh, Blood in My Eyes and Soledad Brothers. Um, and then you have a personality like a Fred Hampton, but all of them had ideas that they were that were part of the organization that were being debated across the country as an organization. But then beyond that, think about organizationally, and this is the contrast with something like Black Lives Matter. If you even associated with the Black Panther Party or came into the organization, there were things you participated in. You could have been doing the breakfast program. You know, Winston-Salem had an ambulance program that you might have been part of, mm-hmm. a free ambulance program. Yeah. There. So there were all of these. Or the community watch program. Yeah, these dynamics going on that a movement like the Black Lives Matter doesn't have those components because they have this platform that's up on the web page. But beyond that, it's not connected to anything else, even in terms of how we understand police brutality and police shootings, it doesn't it hasn't really filtered down in terms of offering us detailed information about what mechanisms are actually going on to create police shootings. Or even how to contextualize those things into your local setting. Right. Because my my question is to people who are activists and try to start conversations about, say, police brutality, what does that look like in our local area? Right. I know how it looks like in Ferguson. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know how that looks like in Raleigh. That's right. I can do the research, but it's just like, how would I understand this as a problem? That's right. And that's 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 the problem is that is how, like you said, I think foundationally we are messed up in how we're thinking. And I, you know, I should say, and some of it is my generation's fault in the sense that that. My my mother and my grandmother were part of two very important generations, the Black Power Movement generation and the Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm. But when you get to my my mother and myself, there's this kind of transition that goes on in terms of, okay, we've overcome a major hurdle, so we don't need to build up the next generation so that they learn how to fight. And so in a lot of ways, we didn't continue. I, I often use the phrase, an intergenerational relay race. 
and each generation almost hands over the baton and says, okay, it's your turn to take the struggle forward. And part of it is that my generation dropped the baton. Mm. And the ways in which we dropped the baton is that because more of us were going to college, getting corporate jobs and all of those things, there was this impression kind of building up literally to Barack Obama that things have we've done we're free. Yeah. But the problem is, is that we, we didn't have a conception of what that freedom meant after segregation, mm-hmm. after the formal ending of segregation. So after 65 and these formal laws start to come down, things don't change. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. Uh-huh. Yeah. But the impression is a small segment of African-Americans begin to benefit. Right, because like there's the the argument of you have a black billionaire and right. Oprah, right. Jay Z, and those types. They right. represent all black people, so like all black people can succeed because right. they have succeeded, which is problematic because not every black person is Jay Z, not every black person is Oprah, and like runs into those opportunities within the entertainment industry. Right, and also like what you said also made me think about uh, class mm-hmm. in a way that I read an article about how class perceptions change within the black community. Right. So for the longest of times, it was the low income working class people who always thought the system had to change. Right. And and I believe that was like during those times of the black power movement, the 60s, it was a right. very working class movement mm-hmm. that changed where during the 90s it was the middle class that said that we need change and it was like the working class that said well things are fine i say that to say that i see that there's a difference of energy when it comes to how the movement is energized right how it's not coming from the same places no more Mm -hmm. and how it's more there's more holes and there's more things to critique because if the black person with like a phd is talking about oppression and the working class person isn't right. It, it creates a, a a division. Right. It creates a hole in which there is. So it creates what I I I believe is the huge issue of class within the black community. A right. sense of like our movement is like middle class people are are advocating for these specific things and right. using the language that's been used for mm-hmm. like civil rights and the black power movement, basically using the language of the working class people while the working class people are not saying anything. Right. And so the movement has di- diverged in that way and it's creating this hole where we are not unified in how we're talking in discourse about, okay, what is this oppression? Right. Like how are you being an oppressed in this way versus right. like, cause I see there's a difference on what a working class person would advocate for as far as oppression. They'll say healthcare, different things like that. A more middle-class person would say not, it's not healthcare I'm worried about. It's like hair discrimination, right. both legit issues, but right. get it. There's, there's a difference in that. Right. Like when I get around my people, my people in my fellowship of young people for, and we discuss our, um, conceptual conceptions mm-hmm. of oppression and things like that and we and some of us do come from the college setting some of us don't right i see that there's a difference because most of us are coming from like a working class background right it's different from like discourse here at the university where like at a pwi most of our the students are even if they are of color 
they usually are upper class, middle class. Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, that was part of the historical thing that I was talking about that has happened where we dropped the ball. So for myself, when I went to University of Missouri, I was first generation college student. Everyone for the uh, 99 percent of the black students that were at Mizzou at that time were first generation college students. So there was a certain awareness about being working class and black that you were quite aware of when I went was in college. Um, often joke, for example, that before I went to University of Mizzou, I never knew what a new car looked like. Mm. And when I went to Mizzou, seeing, you know, middle class white kids with new cars, cars more expensive than my parents owned, that, you know, that reinforced a kind of class consciousness that was already there. But I think if you look historically at African-Americans in this country, you've always seen, you know, two cultures, if you will, one working class and one middle class. It's just sometimes because of the nature of racism and other things, we don't really think of them in class terms. We see them in racial terms. So like it's interesting with the Jay-Z conversation, we you're seeing people use these terms like he's a sellout, right? As <laughs> if we didn't have black capitalists in the in the past <laughs> that did the same thing that Jay-Z has historically done. Right. We just a- didn't have the People often use racial language to talk about these things. Because we've racialized class. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. So if you but if you think about it, particularly in the context of popular culture, most of the great artists have always come from the working class. But the people who benefit are usually the black middle class and upper class. So, for example, you look at Barry Gordy and Motown. All of those kids that were at Motown were working class kids that he took advantage of the talent that they had. You look at Jay-Z and Rockefeller Records. He took advantage of a lot of kids from Philadelphia in order to build up Rockefeller. Mm. But now we talk about him as this so-called billionaire. I don't believe the billionaire thing, but (laughs) there's always been this tradition of, that kind of thing. I mean, you can look at James Brown as another example. James Brown has some phenomenal musicians working for him that he didn't pay, <laughs> but they made some amazing sound. The JBs were amazing. So there's always been this kind of ongoing tension. The difference that's happened since the eighties and coming into the nineties and the two thousands is that the wealth gap separating a puffy from his artists is huge now such right. that Puffy has a bigger microphone than the average working class person could ever get. So think about the outlets that if you were a working class person and you had something to say, you could have been talented enough to get heard on the radio or get through. But after 1996 with the telecommunications act, you can't walk into a radio station and go, hey, I just want to perform on the, the radio. I know y'all got a free hour and y'all let me sing so somebody can hear me. Those opportunities don't emerge anymore. So the traditional working class voice that you could hear in various instances doesn't get heard because of all of the noise. I mean, think about it. And this is another thing I would put on my generation the biggest mistake that we made as a generation 
was conflating our racial identity with the ghetto. Mm. So now you have African-American kids that have may grow up in suburban areas are very much a part of the black experience, but because they don't have a ghetto experience, then they don't think of themselves as black. Right. And so, so <laughs> it creates that problem because there's that disconnect in that it creates a, a, a kind of erasure. Like, right. like I'm trying to erase a, a part of my identity right. to fit the default. Right. Because the default suburbia is white. Right. And then the other side to it is in America, we don't talk about class. So that's also a thing. If you're an American, then notions of class get real blurry because you conflate it with lifestyle or how many cars your parents own and all these other subjective categories. There was like a poll that said like, uh, I forgot the percentage, but there was like more people who perceive themselves as middle class versus people who are actually middle class. Exactly. Precisely. And that's because in America, we don't talk about class in a concrete way of like, okay, what's your income? What's right. your actual material benefits? Right. Versus like how your actual lifestyle is. Right. And that's because the American economy is very, it is capitalistic, but yeah. I always believe our economy isn't capitalistic. Mm. It's we live in a capitalistic society. I right. separate that because like no economy is purely capitalistic. Even well, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that in class about how you define what capitalism is. But I think it's I think for me, it's important. One, you have to look at what what the class relationships are in also, the country. What class was that? <laughs> for the people that's listening, what class were we talking about? Philosophy 319, uh, Africana political philosophy. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> But yeah, I mean that—that's a key component is looking at the class relations because here's the thing, you're never—you're right in the sense of having a pure capitalist system in which you're going to have these clear categories of uh, wage worker versus um, capitalist that you know makes uh, their uh, money by clearly exploiting wage labor. I mean we have salaried workers, so yeah. that adds a category to it. In the history of this country, we had slaves who were a form of commodity that didn't receive any wage. Right. So you do see. And and there's also like we have a social safety net and different things like that that add to the confusion. Right. But have no doubt about it that if you were to look at the basic functioning of this country, we are capitalists in the sense that the vast majority of wealth in this country is generated by the exploitation of working class people. You can't get around that at all. Oh, um, no, I believe that is that while well, I'm saying the economy, I'm saying like how there's a social safety net and mm-hmm. different things it's, like that. Yeah. That doesn't negate like what you're saying. Cause right. that's why I say society. Right, right, right. Because how we even conceptualize American society is capitalist. Right. It's based on capitalistic principles. Right. And we do not, necessarily engage in discourse outside of that right. any any type of like discourse of like say the the debate of uh medicare for all mm-hmm. and how re- the reaction to it towards it right in a country where like we're like the richest country yet people right. still can't get health care no at all and the reaction to that is like oh that's socialism right like, that's that's so, not even <laughs> well but we we as Marx used to say, uh, the the news media and other outlets 
um, I mean, they, they operate on the premise that their job is to perfect the illusion that this is a, the best society, the best of all possible worlds. And so, I mean, when you, you one of the best movies, I think, in contemporary times that does a good job of demystifying some of this stuff is um, Michael Moore had a movie called um, Where, Where to Invade ne Next. And uh, it does a good job of giving you a kind of inside view of France and e England and Algeria, a ton of different countries. But he looks at things like uh, school lunches in France, um, sex ed in France, like in contrast that to the U.S. And he does a really good job of showing even how free college education works in places like uh, Finland and Scandinavia, like all of these different countries. And it's a, it's really eye-opening. When I show it to students, they're almost blown away because he does a good job of showing you that a lot of these countries are still capitalist countries. Right. But yeah. all of these things that you associate with socialism are clearly there in those countries. Because that's the thing. I, I, I listened to a podcast uh, by an uh, author whose name escapes me, but he made this point of how he, he was making the point that right wing politicians do politics better than left wing politicians because the thing is they'll make things like job creation mm -hmm. like they would make the cap uh a capitalist seem much more uh what's it called uh that word uh um not reasonable but uh much more benevolent right right because oh they're creating jobs they're creating right, opportunities when in reality they're not they're creating jobs for specific people right specific roles and also his other point that, uh, that I was trying to get to, that those points are kind of like shared, that's how I did get through mm. that, was that if you really want to be like accomplish what like the capitalist says, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you want to accomplish that really, you would want free college right. and free healthcare right. so the worker can work. Right. So not to have those things, you're working inefficiently. Right. I mean, <laughs> but that's the thing. American capitalistic society is very different. Yeah. And so I guess that was my biggest, that, that was my point is like how in America, our specific view of capitalism mm. is as much, honestly, it's almost theological. It's almost like a religion, honestly, because yeah. it's just like, we do not separate capitalism. There's, there is no separate separation of capitalism from any other thing right. in America. Capitalism is in every facet of our society. There's, right. there's, we try to talk to people about an alternative to capitalism. It's just like, no, no, yeah. no, mm -mm, no, no, uh, no. I mean, I, I don't think I've done it in this class yet, but I mean, I usually start off most of my classes by asking the question, given what you know about capitalism and if you're black in this country, can you expect that capitalism is going to solve the problem that it created? <laughs> That's and that's the problem, and that's why that's the question I like to ask, like people who believe, like, okay, I, I'm always a supporter of black business, yeah. but like, how does that solve the foundational right. issue of 
equity and quality. Right. It's kind of like a Band-Aid. It doesn't... Because my thing is, I'm from Durham, and mm-hmm. like Durham had Black Wall Street right. uh, back in the... Say early 1900s, mm-hmm. late mm-hmm. 1800s. Yeah. I think so it was definitely before. It was definitely during like Jim Crow and right. stuff like that. And so Durham had Black Wall Street, but the thing is, the foundational issue of inequality didn't change. Yeah. The color of the capitalist changed. Right. But the actual issue of inequality didn't change. Because right. my thing is, it's like even in Africa, like there's inequality uh, between like rich and poor. Right. And that doesn't change the immorality of right. inequality. Well, I mean, that's when you do a class analysis of Jim Crow, what you have to see is that the peop, one group of people that benefited from Jim Crow was what we would call a black middle class or the black uh, capitalist class. And the ways in which they benefit is because in a segregated market, I can't necessarily shop at a white store or I get treated in a disrespectful way at a black store. So at as a result of that, when you look at the 20th century, you see things like Johnson and Johnson publishing Ebony and jet. Right. Mm, right. But what happens after the fact and after 1965, once the market opens up and black people are able to cross over the color line and go work at white corporate firms, then things start to change because now, Oh, you mean, the corporate price that I'm paying for this black toothpaste is cheaper. So I can get Crest for a dollar cheaper than what I've been playing at the local black store. All of that starts to change. And it's kind of to, to bring it home to what we were talking about uh, a couple of days ago. It also has an impact in terms of our culture. So when you look at hip hop, one of the big things that uh, ushers in a change in terms of the sound of hip hop is once these labels like Def Jam start going over to corporate things like Warner Brother, they get brought out. Well, Warner Brothers goes, well, did you get a clearance for this sample? Oh, if we get a clearance for this sample, then we're going to have to pay a whole lot of money to, to play this song. So you can't sample as many songs as you used to do. So now you, get, you go from, say, De La Soul, which it now is having problems with Tommy Boy, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden, you get to Dr. Dre's The Chronic. If you listen to most of Dr. Dre's The Chronic, most songs he's using one song that he sampled. Right. He's not using five different songs and coming up with a new sound. He's using one right. song, usually from some P Funk song that he done came across, <laughs> and he pays off, uh, you know. Um, P Funk and all of those people, yeah. and so you see the the landscapes start to change. So, out of that, and I think this is the most important thing when we look what's going on today, is that despite the fact that you had you've you've had over fifty years of close to fifty years of mu- of hip hop music, the only people that are beginning to define what hip hop is now are the Puffies, the Sean Carters of the world that didn't, they, they did relatively little in terms of making the music that it is. Yeah, the, they serve as gatekeepers now. They serve and, as gatekeepers. And also, I think a part of that discussion has to be also uh, white consumerism. Uh, as far as like, we, the thing is like, 
as black people we want to act like we own hip-hop right but the thing is though we sell it so it's kind of like in a capitalist society if you sell something you don't really own it no more because right. you've sold it so we sell our culture all the time right and and so like these these conversations about like cultural appropriation all that they're necessary but at the same time foundationally right if i sell this image or i sell this music how can you tell someone that they can't participate in it when they well, put their money into it like I'm, a lot of these yeah. like a lot of like the artists like so if you're like a local rapper your local scene boosted you up so most right. of your black audience boosted right. you up but you then have to appeal to a white audience in order to get right. paid right in order to get the big million dollar contracts right. you have to appeal to a white audience in fact um there was a video of uh i'm not sure if you know the rapper uh he made the Spunny dance. Uh, got his name, Bobby. Bobby Schmurder. Okay. There's a video of him. Literally, it's, it looks like a minstrel show of him dancing in front of a bunch of white executives, <laughs> old white executives. Right. Mind you, he's like 17, 16. Right, right. Making music about his real life, living right. in like inner city and inner right. city violence. Right. And you got these white people just look at him like a zombie, just because right. they just didn't. They, they want to make money off of this. Right. I mean, there, don't get me wrong. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly in what you said because cultural appropriation is a real issue historically. So, you know, you look at the ways in which Elvich Presley took from Mama Thornton, uh, the blues singer, mm. um, the Beach Boys, and what they did to Chuck Berry. So, th those things, real things happen in terms of cultural appropriation. But I think the wider problem particularly when it comes to hip-hop is people aren't under they don't understand the political economy of music mm. and what i mean by that is that since the 20th the early 20th century music has been a commodity that's been brought and sold and we judge that subjectively in court terms of popularity but we also have to understand the role that corporations play in the production of the commodity that we call music. So if you look at hip hop, when the Sugar Hill Gang does their classic song, hip hop becomes a commodity at that point. Now, what's important is that from the late 70s up until, I would arguably make the case up until the mid 90s, because hip-hop didn't have the same legitimacy that other forms of music had. It wasn't able to reach into MTV the way that other forms of music like rock and roll, you could have found Guns N' Roses, for example, on MTV, but an artist like... Um, Look, uh, um, you name I, an artist like... LL, no, LL made not, some that, tracks for MTV, but... Um, um, cool in the Gang, maybe? Uh, well, there's... I give you the uh, from the West Coast. Um, uh, the streets took me under. Um, I can't think of his name. Uh, MC Eight. MC Eight. Okay. You, t you take a group like like the MCA. MC Eight wouldn't have been able to get onto MTV unless there was something like M Yo MTV Raps. Right? Yeah. So that and usually that's be like some off block hour. Right. It'd be some weird kind of configuration when you would hear it. But here's the thing. While that's true, it's important to understand that what defined what hip hop was from that period of the late 70s 
till 86, I mean, till 96, even as a commodity was commercial success. If you weren't commercially successful, even in that small market that was not, you didn't have a lot of whites consuming, the hair, you still had to be commercially successful. Because one of the uh, interesting things with Jay-Z's story is that the person that he could never beat when he was coming up was LL Cool J. Because LL Cool J was commercially successful and he was a great rapper. In fact, if you listen to his stuff today, it's really good. So it's not a question of underground versus commercial success or whatnot. What changed is how the commodity we call hip-hop, how it was produced from these small independent labels to now being a part of these big corporate conglomerates. Now, if you want to get on the radio or Apple Music and actually be heard, you got to cross over. That's just the nature of the beast. But it, I think one of the problems of this move with hip-hop, though, is that it's created a false ideology of hustling as what everybody does in order to reach commercial success. And the problem with that is, is that the reality is when you look at the royalty rates for Apple Music, Spotify, these artists aren't making any money, despite the facade that they give you of, I'm a big boss like Rick Ross. They, (laughs) most of them aren't making any money. And what's, one of the outcomes has been that that the the culture itself has been hurt. The music just is not good music as in its totality. I'm not saying that, you know, J. Cole or this artist is not a great artist, but when you step back and look at hip hop as a totality, it just doesn't sound like great music as a as a totality. Mm-hmm. I mean there's exceptions. I mean, um, with everything, there's these exceptions. But if you look at the totality, I think we can say that not only sonically, not only lyrically, hip-hop just doesn't sound like good music. But we can say that about most pop music today, that it just doesn't sound like great music. I mean, yeah, because like some people are making music right in their bedroom. Yeah, right. <laughs> so Right in their bedrooms, like this bedroom pop music. Right. And... Also, the the corporations like they have uh, a supreme presence right. and like things like platforms like spot like is is a form of platform right. capitalism basically, where like Spotify, Spotify and Apple Music, you're not getting placed on say okay so there's a playlist called Rap Caviar which right. is like the most popular uh, playlist placement you can get right so you're not getting that many views on your song if you're not on that playlist. No. Like, I don't care how good the music is. Right. It's just... It's just not like... It's not possible. Artists, I like Big Crit. He's just not getting no, on no, the rap no, caviar. No yeah, he's not no getting way. on the rap caviar. Well, um, um, my man that was recently killed was like that. Um, he was an underground artist. He was good, but he, he probably never would have really broke through um, that got killed in, in L.A., um, um, over the summer. Um, dang, I was just uh, Ethiopian. Ethiopian? Yeah. He's uh, Ethiopian and American. Um, he was a rapper? Yeah, a rapper. Um, uh, Victory Lap. Oh, Nipsey. Yeah, Nipsey. Now, Nipsey had, I, I think, had a lot of talent, but he wasn't going to make it through and had the crossover success. 
um, that uh, that Kendrick would have had. I don't think he would have been as big. He would have gotten as much. What shocked me when he died is the number of people that didn't know who he was. That shocked me as well because I was like Nipsey Hussle. Like, yeah, he's been doing his thing for a while, for a while. especially especially like for the community. He's yeah, been doing a lot of great stuff. Yeah. Like his whole like uh, community hub, I right. believe it was yeah, in, like, yeah. in, in L.A. and how he's just really like working to like help like low working class people yeah, yeah. like move up in the world. Yeah. And so he, he he the crazy thing is when he died though he was on the rap caviar playlist. Was he? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean that just shows like just the capitalism of death. Yeah. Just yeah. like so it, after he died he got on but before he wasn't. I didn't see him like that. He okay. could have got on, but like, yeah. I didn't see him like that on the playlist like that. But I definitely saw him like afterwards. Afterward, yeah, afterwards, especially. Yeah, I believe it was like his last popular song was back up there okay. at the top because I guess you know when death happens, everybody's yeah, focused yeah, everybody on it. Everybody capitalizes. Like, yeah, and like the crazy thing is, it's just like his ideas spread though, but it's like with death, it's like eventually all that energy dissipates and like nobody talks about yeah. it no more. Well, no, that's Biden. gonna happen. That's yeah. gonna happen. Yeah. And so, I also like, like so, we talked about it in class. Right. Now you brought it up. We're talking hip hop now. <laughs> so you believe that hip hop died? And to be clear, you believe that hip hop as a genre, right? Uh-huh. As a genre of music, died. What, what, do in you 1996. Also, in 1996. Do you also believe the culture died in 1996? Um, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I think you still see remnants of it. Um, the culture, you know, however you want to classify that. But, you know, going back to the, the previous point, um, one of the things that lives on after that 96 period is you start to see the increasing dominance of this uh, idea that to be black is to be ghetto. And that's what carries through from 96 into the 2000s, where, (laughs) think about it, you literally have people in early 2000 rapping about being drug dealers when we just went through the 80s and the post-industrial, I mean, prison-industrial complex. All the major drug dealers from the 80s were sitting in jail. (laughs) <laughs> but in 2000, you got all these people rapping about being drug dealers. But my, my larger point is, is that if you look at 96 and, you know, kind of to make this kind of summary argument, there's about five or six things that happened that I think are important to understand where we're at now in terms of hip hop. The biggest one, I think, is is Tupac dies that year or gets killed that year. And part of what Tupac represented is he symbolically represented a political rapper with a gangster persona. By the end of his life, he kind of represented that bridge. Why that's important is because if before 96, what was the dominant form commercially was what we call socially conscious rap or political rap. So coming out of that late 80s, early 2000s, public enemy, groups like Tribe Called Quest, um, Paris, all of these black nationalists or, or socially conscious rap groups were coming out. And it gave a particular character to what the music was supposed to sound like. Didn't mean that you didn't have um, LL Cool J or these other people rapping, but 
And increasingly, the pressure was on people to be politically conscious or socially conscious. So when Tupac dies as this kind of bridge figure, what gets left over, like we're talking about Nipsey Hussle, it's not the politics of Tupacalypse now that people are talking about. It's the death row period that everybody talks about, mm-hmm. about Tupac. The second thing that's most important to understand in 1996 and why I say hip-hop died then, and in general what I mean by hip-hop died, it became fully incorporated into the corporate labels, and they began to dictate what it should sound like. Right. And so the second thing that happens, which is most important, 1996 is the first year that gangster rap outsells all other subgenres of hip-hop. And the reason why that's important is because gangster rap was never embodied as a realistic portrayal of black life. You don't you never find Ice Cube, maybe the exception of of Ice T because of the stuff he was rhyming about with with uh, gangs. But in general, Ice Cube is not going to tell you what Easy E was doing was actually real life. But when you get to by the time you get to Biggie and you get to. Um, Jay-Z, and you get to Sauce Money, all this other mafioso stuff is the idea that they're giving you a real portrayal into black life. So 1996, gangster rap outsells subgenres. What I mean by that is, so Tupac had two albums uh, that outsold uh, gangster rap. It sold, actually, it's the first year that gangster rap actually sold half a million uh, copies in its first week. So you get okay. that with Tupac's album, uh, Snoop Dogg's dog, dogs, Doggy Style album. Both of those albums outsell Nas's album that came out that year and the Fuji's The Score, which mm-hmm. most people would classify both of those albums as classic albums. Right, right. But it outsold those, but it was because the corporations were pushing it because yeah. of the controversy. Right. And real quickly, the other things that begin to change in 96 is the number of female rappers in hip hop declines from 40 to about one, but it takes on an image of having to be like little Kim, Trina and um, uh, Foxy Brown. Oh yeah. They have to be sexy and that has to sell. Yeah. And so you get the streamlining of that. Um, And then the other key factor, as we talked about earlier is the 1996 telecommunications act. And it means that, once corporations have control over radio stations, what it locally matters can't get onto the radio to be heard anymore because they're being screened out by these pre, pre-made playlists. So think about it in this way to just to understand the full scale of, of 96. Wu-Tang Clan would have never been able to be a success if it, it had been for the Telecommunications Act. Because most of what Wu-Tang did was they got their friends to call into the radio station <laughs> and say, play Wu-Tang. You can't do that now. Yeah, you can't In do order that. to generate that popularity. So those, all of those kind of factors come together to create a kind of perfect storm where, the, I, and I'm, I'm not saying this judgmentally, I think there's a lot in your generation who think that hip-hop started with Biggie and Tupac and not that probably the most important group in terms of the last 40 years of hip hop is probably public enemy. If not, 
maybe Run DMC, nor the Beachy Boys, but there are a ton of those groups that were influential that people don't yeah, pay like, attention to. Like running them like was like the first hip hop family. Yeah. Um and like Run was like the first ones to do like collaborations with like rock musicians yeah. at the time with like A C D C and do and the Adidas collaboration. Yeah. Here's the other interesting you know, before you get this Jay Z narrative of who's king, it was just too many great groups that people wouldn't bother with having a dumb conversation about who's the best rapper of all time. Cause how do you rank Houdini, De La Soul, Big Daddy Kane? Like it was just too many because you had to actually be good in order to make it out of your local neighborhood. Yeah, you had to be because like it was a competition. Like yeah. you had to fight for that small spot. Sure. But all of them were good. Like I honestly think the, if someone the, the was the competition being, made it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think if if someone was being objective and they actually went back and compared LL Cool J and Jay-Z, I think what you'd find is LL Cool J had a much better lyrical style and growth over the course of his career where Jay-Z never had any of that. I mean, LL was really good. Well, objectively, like Jay-Z, like he was always about the money. So yeah. it's kind of like he made music just to make money. Yeah. And LL created his own subgenre. He's probably the one person in within rap who has mastered love songs for hip hop love songs. Yeah, like, we don't really have that no more. Yeah, yeah. we but it, LL mastered it. He like had like you know that some of them were corny, like I need love. But <laughs> yeah, some my, of them were my, good. My, my, like, pops, uh, my pops loves that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, but he pulled it off. Like where it's weird to pull it off. Like I think. As an artist, Nas has an, an amazing talent of rapping. He's an amazing rapper, amazing lyricist, but he has the ability to to pick songs, music that are not traditional hip hop songs and pull it off. The Damon Marley collaboration is amazing. Mm. Uh, the collaboration he did with his father, which has the blues in the background, is an amazing track. And I think this recent uh, Al Jarreau from the Lost Tapes. I think that track is amazing that th- a typical rapper couldn't pull that off. It's only someone of Nas's talent that can pull off the Al Jarreau song that he just did on the Lost Tapes. Yeah. So with, okay, so I want to bring this over, like hip hop being dead in uh-huh. that way, does that affect the politics of hip hop? Like- well, part of my larger argument with this thing is that black musicians but particularly let's just focus on on hip-hop black musicians need to change the way in which they understand how music is produced and one way in which they come to terms with that is by creating a union to not only protect the sound or the culture of a particular genre but also to to actively fight for health benefits to actually fight for royalties that have been taken out. But they have to come together as a collective. But if your ideology is, I just want to own my masters and I want to be a CEO or a hip-hop mogul, then you never understand how you're tied to the collective group. 
Yeah, because like there was like one hip hop like legend, right? That was like poor and broke, and like everybody's like, "Yo, why doesn't like Jay Z or like we uh, like we recognize the fact that if it wasn't for so and so, right, back then we wouldn't have such and such. Right. Why don't we like invest in our and in, and and that's what it, they need to come together. But I think one of the outcomes of coming together collectively like that, and you saw similar things like this with blues and jazz, is that once you have that critical mass of people who are coming together, they're having a say-so in how the music progresses. Mm. So blues musicians, let's, let me just take a simple example. Let's say you're a jazz musician and you're a young 16-year-old jazz musician coming up in the 1960s. Well, part of the culture is you got to get on stage with some of the top-tier musicians like Miles, and we got to see if you really got talent. You don't have that now. Now is Warner Brothers says so and so is coming out next week, <laughs> and they're gonna be sponsored on the new Spider Man soundtrack. <laughs> like that, it, that's th- funny, but that's real because like <laughs> a lot of people believe like viral hits are like no. are, 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 no. are organic. Yeah. They're not. They're curated. Yeah, very much curated. Algorithm algorithm picks that, and like right. people have been studying the algorithm to figure it out because it's not just out there for anybody to use. But right, there are people who who claim themselves to be experts and like, say, no. hey, um, this is how you exploit the algorithm no, and stuff no, like you that. Can't. You can't. And the other thing for me is, is that, and this just goes back to me appreciating learning an instrument and live instrumentation. African-American musicians need to come together collectively and give money back to schools so that kids can learn how to play an instrument. And then you're going to see it, it may mean that you're going to hear better music in terms of hip hop, but I'm hoping what is, is created is a new genre of black music. And that's the stage that we're at where we need to have a discussion about creating a new genre of black music that doesn't feel like it has to succumb to this simplistic hip hop four, uh, four beat that you're getting it sounds like, for me, contemporary hip-hop, and I know this is going to sound mean for a lot of your listeners, contemporary music, uh, hip-hop to me, sounds like um, a kind of mixture of Euro disco music, EDM, mm-hmm. with a little bit of an undertone of R&B music of some sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, R&B is hugely influential, yeah. even more so than the old school hip-hop. Right. So it's like a mixture of like when you listen to Anderson Pac, which I love, I love Anderson Pac, but is he rapping or singing? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I believe that's also Drake's influence as well. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. you listen to this kind of sing songy, dancing, yeah, yeah. It's it's made for clubs and, and right. stuff like that. Yeah, but also is a change in the culture in hip hop as well because uh, I saw a meme that was like. Uh, in the eighties and nineties, like rappers were like drug dealers. Now they're drug addicts. Yeah, <laughs> no, seriously. I, it's like it's kind of <laughs> like in the reverse of like we fully embrace the whole consumerism. Right. We and consume it, music now. Yeah, if you look at some of the the academic scholarship on this, you'll see going from the late seventies till mid nineties on into the two thousands, the number of marketing mentions that you're seeing in hip hop music and pop music in general has increased 200% at least so that you're seeing these connections between being uh, drunk, 
or under the influence of drugs at the at the club equates to happiness and having a good time. So all of those things kind of change. You know, like we were talking about earlier, it's kind of interesting because I had, I liked Missy Elliott, but I never would have been like, man, you really got to, I would have never been like, man, you need to really listen to Missy Elliott. Like I would have never recommended her. But like Missy, for her, for her time, was really good at for dance music. Like you wouldn't yeah. even think about it twice, but it was really good dance, Missy, Missy Elliott. But I, I think I just don't understand this contemporary dance thing now. I, I don't get it because um, it doesn't feel like dance music to me for some reason. It's like it's like conceptually, it's the producers are making dance music, but then the lyrics and everything have nothing to do with nothing at all. Yeah. Actually, because like that, I think that's the lack of understanding of like music as far as like your how you make a song how you conceptualize right. a song it has to feed the bass basically right the bass is saying hey we want songs that kind of help me get lit so right. like when i'm drunk or when i'm high and so i need songs that feed that feeling that vibe right and so the the sound could be something very pop very dance or whatever and about having a good time but it has to filter out to being like a drug addict. Right. Like, like is a meme out there like that talks about how, um, uh, artists called future. He, he's always making uh, music about drugs. And it's right. like, future is really like suffering as a drug addict, but we're too busy being lit. To right. Like, right. Actually, to really care about it. To really care yeah. about <laughs> it. He's a real drug addict yeah. and he probably has a huge problem. Yeah. But we're still going to like dance to it. Yeah. And so I, that's what it is. Yeah. Well, here's the I mean, here's the real problem and why there's always been this connection with drugs and, and music. And, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the political economy and music. The typical artist, because of the, the messed up contract that they have in the music industry, is always getting screwed. Yeah. So in most instances, a musician has the celebrity, but not the money. So here's yeah. what happens. In most instances, celebrities use drugs to try to tr chase that next hit so they can have a hit song. So they're getting high because they want to increase the amount of creativity they can generate. And they, they think that if they stay up longer hours, that somehow or another they'll have a creative epiphany and they'll have another hit song. Kanye um, West. Yeah. And it creates this kind of cycle of being a drug dealer. You saw it with um, uh, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, if you ever watched that movie um, with uh, uh, Lorenzo Tate in it. Um, that happened over and over. You, listen, you look at um, Death Row Records, drugs in there. You look at Outkast and the Dungeon Family. Part of what messed them up was drugs is that at one point, they had a small collective of people they work with, and all of a sudden, they became powerful, and everybody wanted that sound of the Dungeon Family. Well, now you're working with artists that you don't even know, but you got to turn out a hit song for them. Uh. So, what do you do? And and they talked about this in the uh, Dungeon Family uh, documentary. You know, fun fact: Future is a Dungeon Family. No stuff. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's Dungeon Family. A really? lot of people don't know that. He's Dungeon Family. Oh, wow. 
So, but those guys would would basically stay up all night at the strip club, getting high, and trying to go back to the studio to make another hit song. And the reality is, and and this is the the cycle that you have to be attuned to. The reality is, is that most artists, particularly today, in terms of their hotness, usually last about three years. Yeah. I'm still I'm surprised that we still have the Kendricks and the J. Coles and the Drake still selling out. Well, it's because it's the, the Beyonce effect. They're making money. That's true. You know, like um, the, I know this is a hot topic, but I think if you were to compare musically Beyonce to someone like Lettucey or Leela James, Aretha Franklin, Aretha Franklin, that you, you, the soulfulness. Yeah. And here's the key part. It's the soulfulness of those singers that doesn't get them the mainstream crossover. It's the pop appeal of Beyonce that gets her the crossover appeal because mm-hmm. she's able to do the pop thing in a way in which you can't get pop out of Lettucey. You just can't do it. You just can't. It sounds so soulful, and her jazz background is phenomenal. Yeah. You know. That's not to undermine Beyonce. For no, the it's not. The, I'm not trying beehive. to upset the Beehive. I'm just chill. I'm making a comment chill. about evaluating music chill. today. Where my, my only point with Beyonce is that we don't have the wider pantheon of black R&B to listen to today. It's really restricted in terms of who gets to the airwaves. Yeah, because like R&B used to be very like even. Like you used to hear everybody really because yeah. like you had like Babyface, you had like um, another one of those transformations where the R and B wasn't selling as hot as hip hop. So what happened is you notice if you listen to old hip hop, you'll notice that hip hop artists used to special guests appear on a R and B song. Yeah. Then there was this transition where the R and B artists were singing the hooks. Yeah, <laughs> and it was a very smooth transition where R and B kind of got pushed to the side, but it just wasn't making the same amount of money. Yeah, you see that even like in how Spotify classifies R and B. Yeah, so yeah. like I mean, that classifies how it places it. Yep. When you first go into Spotify and you go into like to search for your genres of music you want to listen to, of course at the top is like hip hop, then pop. Right. Yep. Like two sections down. Yeah. 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 There's R&B. Yeah. Which is weird because a lot of artists are pulling from R&B. Yeah. A no. lot of artists. Drake no, pulls you, a, a you, lot from R&B. You just look at the, I mean, and not to romanticize this previous period, but I mean, if you look at someone like a Stevie Wonder, for example, Stevie Wonder was a phenomenal artist from childhood to adulthood um, who's lasted over time. But I mean, think about it. He was also competing against Marvin Gaye. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Ray Charles, like the n- range of people that he had to compete with in order for his sound to be heard is you can't match that today in terms of that. Um, when Whitney Houston was a pop star, I mean, think about it, like who she's battling up against. Um, you're talking about, um, oh, my God, uh, I want to say Sade. Um, is hot during that same period. You also get, um, oh, I can't think of her name now, Anita Baker. At the same time, I mean, think about that. She's up against one of the best R&B singers at that time. One of the best voices. And 
And Anita Baker was selling records just as well as Whitney Houston was, right? So that's the difference, I think, with now is that it's not that there's not talented talented singers out there comparable to Beyonce that could give her some competition. They're just not getting through in terms of these gatekeepers. Yeah. And her husband owns title. So that plays a, a part, big role. A part of that is the artists themselves because like artists are now starting their own labels. Uh, I think it was uh Pusha T. I'm not going to say the actual lyric. Um, but he was <laughs> like, uh, he was basically making the point like, a lot some artists signed to another artist who signed to another label who signed to another label right. so basically like something like uh so drake drake has his label it's called ovo uh-huh. uh it's october's very own that's what it stands for okay it doesn't really matter it's okay. just a fun fact i just know too much hip-hop trivia. <laughs> I, I really have i yeah. really am like a hip-hop head like i yeah. know too much about hip-hop so yeah. like Drake has his label, which is signed to Warner Brothers. Right. Which is a fun fun fact. Young Money is signed to, I think, Universal. Right. And so, like, there, it's interesting how he didn't sign his label to uh, the same one. Mm-hmm. He signed it to Warner. And so that's the thing is, like, this big corporation, right. like, trickle down to, like, think about this. Like, if you're a Drake's artist, you're signed to, like, three different people. Who are getting three different cuts. Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So you end up just like feeling the big artist, like yeah. like Eminem has a label, and like nobody hears about that. Nah. The reason why is because he's Eminem. He's not. He doesn't do any label management. No, like, you're not going to see Eminem. Well, I mean, it's funny when you look at the top selling albums of all time in hip hop. Eminem, all of it, Eminem's albums sell. Outkast is um their. A double CD is the best-selling album of all time with eleven thousand. But if you go get to the bottom, at the very bottom are people like Drake and um, uh, um, what's this one? The other uh, woman uh, rapper, uh, Cardi B? Huh? Cardi B? No, before Cardi B, Nicki, Nicki Minaj, Nicki Minaj. But they're only doing 3,000 sales at best for their albums. Yeah. Right? I mean, uh, three three million. I'm sorry. Three million. Three million. Yeah, three yeah, million. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, three, three million. million. Versus. Because they're still hitting platinum. Yeah, yeah. They, so they're hitting that stage, but they're not going above between three million and five million. So if you're doing singles now, which is the only focus that most artists are focusing on, because they just want you to get heard. You just want to know Yeah, because like now artists are not even doing albums no more. They're no. doing like playlists for like right. 20 songs or yep. like on Chance like dropped his debut albums like 20 songs in there. I'm not trying to hear 20 songs. You're not Chance. trying to hear. So the, but he's the, trying to hit that 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 trying to get a hit. You're trying to get a hit song so that you can do a tour and you can make all your money off a tour because you're not making it off royalties. No. There's no way when you look at what they're paying for royalties on Apple Music, Title. All of these things. That's slave labor. It's slave labor. So <laughs> that there's there's no way these these are million dollar artists. At best, they're probably forty thousand dollar artists. One hundred thousand dollars worth of jewelry. Yeah, that's that, about that's it. not even theirs. Yeah, <laughs> you, and it's it's not possible. The biggest, and I made this point in class. The biggest problem I think for hip hop musically, in terms of why it doesn't generate that kind of revenue, is it's too wordy in terms of its lyrics. And because everyone wants to be original and doesn't want to be bitten, 
you can't redo a song. So it's not cool in hip hop for someone to come back and do a notorious B.I.G. song. Nobody's going to come back and do Juicy. So that means it ain't going to get no rotation to get generate enough royalties. Right. Because who's going to replay Biggie yeah, over, no, over again? Like who's going who's gonna to sample like, I don't know, a Drake song? Yeah. Like, you just, so that it creates its own. Like everybody's doing original stuff like do, from a different producer. Like first it's like maybe like a new producer. Like um, who was it? Uh Name escapes me. Uh, Metro Boomin. Yeah, right? yeah, and then well, the sound changes. Right, but somebody is always going to do redo Strange Fruit. Yeah, somebody's always going to do redo a Nat King Cole song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's generating that kind of money. It may not be a ton of money, but it's still like it's still that f- music that people everyone uses. Because everybody wants the, that sound, right? Whether it's the drums, the kick, or something, whatever. Kind of Miles Davis, kind of blue. There's always somebody trying to redo a Miles Davis song. Yeah, the, um, there was actually a artist named Juice World. His uh, first hit uh, was actually it sampled it sampled uh, Sting's uh, melody. Yeah, yeah. So you that, that's the difference is where hip hop, especially with the production now, you're not going to get the resale value. Yeah, that resale value. So that's. That's why as a genre, we, we should just go, okay, we we done with this and start over. But I'm not saying control it capitalistically, but control it culturally where there's elements of contemporary hip-hop that are, are out of whack in terms of the overall tradition of black music. Previous genres always built on the, the previous ge- uh, generation – I don't see echoes of blues or soul or jazz in contemporary hip hop. That's why it sounds more poppy to me. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what you want to listen to, that's fine. But let's have a, a serious discussion about African-American music and what it is. I'm not making any judgments about it has to talk about this because we had two live crew. So I I'm used to the rudeness and the raunchiness. That's but didn't all- we lose a lot of politics though? Because like a lot of it, it's it's funny to me. Like we having a discussion about yeah. Jay Z and Kyle Kaepernick, right? Because Jay Z, like yes, he gets political. Like I guess with his money, but it's just like he's not a political figure. I don't consider him a political well, figure in a sense. He gets a platform, yeah. But what politics is he actually engaging in? That that's the. Largest question, excuse me, I think that needs to be had. And this is about clarifying concepts. One of the sections I'm writing now is called the James Brown theory of liberation. Mm. If you look at James Brown, James Brown only wrote say it loud and I'm bracking I'm proud because the Black Panthers parties was calling him a sellout because he was actually selling out black capitalism to the Nixons of the world. Mm. Right. So they were calling him out. That's what forced him to do a song like that. But think about it. James Brown made money off of black pride when he what he was a conservative all his life. Sammy Davis Jr. You see. So you see what I'm saying? (laughs) It's like this idea that of politics now has become so watered down that we think about this. If you put. Jay-Z into a discussion with Paul Robeson, <laughs> Sam Cooke, 
even add Stevie Wonder, Harry Belafonte, Nina Simone, Miriam Amakiba, he don't match up to that tradition at all. There's nothing political as it relates to Jay-Z and Paul Robeson. You can't, they're not even in the same conversation. Right. Um, What Harry Belafonte was doing in terms of the civil rights movement and it far outweighs anything that Jay-Z has done in terms of producing a video on such and such individual. What movement, political movement, is Jay-Z funding like that? All of Martin Luther King's kids were able to grow up as full adults and get college degrees because of Harry Belafonte. So I put this in perspective. When Malcolm X died, there was no beneficiary to help his kids out. So all of his kids grew up having problems because they saw their father actually get killed in front of their eyes. To the point where his Malcolm X's own grandson burned down his own grandmother's house and killed Betty Shabazz. Now, it was probably an accident, but what I'm saying is the ways in which that trauma played out based on Harry Belafonte providing for King's kids versus Malcolm X makes a world of difference. There is no, there is no national uh, site that you can go through to in Michigan. That's as elaborate as what they got in Atlanta for King. Yeah. Jay-Z is not doing that kind of stuff politically. I'm not saying he got to be involved in a movement, but don't exaggerate what he's doing because it's not politics. It's benevolent capitalism. Yeah, and that's different from actually being, (laughs) that's different from actual liberation movement. Right. um, I mean, put it in perspective. John D. Rockefeller gave money to start the University of Chicago. Is that, I mean, we don't call that politics or Rockefeller was being some kind of radical. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, he started a college. Right. Like, it's The it's, Carnegies started, you know, Carnegie Mellon Institute. Like, we don't go, man, them Carnegies were radicals, man. They were doing <laughs> heavy politics. We don't talk in that way. I, I think it's because we just, like, we don't have, like, the black community just doesn't have that many political figures. Like, who's a political voice that really says anything? Yeah. That says anything that challenges any but, type of, that challenges people. But, but see, that that's because... You get, you got to go back to the 60s, particularly 68, to understand why that happened. Actually, 65. Once political leaders were either gunned down or killed like Fred Hampton exiled. and exiled, then who stepped into that void were elected officials. Post-65 is when you get the biggest numbers of elected officials coming out. You get mayors in Cleveland and Detroit and all these places, Kansas City and a whole bunch of other places. So the problem is, is that we're looking at for leadership from elected officials. That's so true. It, it's which is, like, which and, is crazy because like they're public servants and yeah. like we should be, but like, it, well, it's the crossover problem. Who do they have to answer to? Yeah. They have to answer to all citizens. Like Barack Obama gave you the blueprint. Like I can't just speak to the black constituency anymore, but here's the thing. If you look at black mayors in the 60s, they ran the same platform that Barack Obama ran of trying to play this kind of middle of the road uh, game. 
Um, because you can't upset white people. Well, and you got to get elected. Yeah. You know, so that's the larger problem of once you engage in this kind of crossover politics, let's call it that, uh, you got to answer to a certain kind of constituency. Here's the thing. And you just have to be honest with yourself. Beyonce did what she called a Malcolm X formation at the NFL, right? As political as the NFL is, you think if that was really political, they wouldn't have banned her from participating in the show for the NFL? Yeah, like the, the show didn't like it didn't move anything. It didn't move. It was more like okay, we dress up, appropriate the Black Panther like look and like because the look was it was supposed it's intentionally supposed to be like very provocative, very for, sexy and everything. But that was intentional to attract people towards the movement, right? And then there they can get the education. Nobody actually looked up what the Black Panthers platform no. was. Nobody looked up the ten point plan. No, it, so the nose dynamic. So versus. You're talking about Janet Jackson can never perform again because she had a malfunction with her outfit. MIA gets kicked off of playing for the NFL ever again because she said something that was off the script in terms of what was approved for the NFL performances. So if that's your idea of politics, then I'll say for like my generation, like our politics is are very performative. It's performative and symbolic. It's, it's theater. But it, I don't want to get no slack for that because I, I think as we're, we're going to talk about, I mean, in, in our class, I mean, when you really seriously understand what it means to engage in social change and revolution, you you have to critically look at, man, Look what happened to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. What were they actually saying? Look at what happened to Che Guevara. Dude, Jay-Z wearing a Che Guevara shirt is almost laughable. And him even making the statement that I'm like Che Guevara with bling on is blasphemous. Like, you, that, it just, <laughs> it don't make no sense politically. Like, that's just bizarre. So my point is, is that, these individuals were serious individuals and, and we owe their legacy more than trying to reduce it to Jay-Z and a Che Guevara t-shirt. Like it's deeper than that in that respect. I would even like add to add to your point. Uh, there's also the appropriation of yeah. their legacy as well. I remember Kamala Harris's uh, campaign. She came out to announce her can uh, presidential campaign on MLK's birthday. Right, right, right. And runs with the slogan of for the people <laughs> when her record says she's nothing <laughs> right. She's uh, very, she's very much my, in my opinion, right. I'll say that in my opinion, she's very much for corporations yeah. and like corporate interests. And then she is for the people yeah. and to use that type of language is disrespectful to the legacy she's yeah. trying to. But invoke, you know, we're, we're you know. at a point, I think where we can have these conversations, but you know, if if we're going to play it safe, you know, like you're talking about Kamala Harris, I can't understand this poll that says Biden is at the top for African-Americans. Like, I, I can't understand it because that means you, you're not really analyzing any of the issues. You just want somebody to beat Trump. But you could get anybody to do that. That's the thing. That's the and that that's the thing because like all the polls said all the candidates beat Trump. Yeah, even Kamala like, beats Trump. So, what are your issues as African Americans? But I think this goes back to what we started talking about. 
I, I don't know if this is too strong, but because of so much of what we're doing is filtered through pop culture, the ways in which we understand who we are and what we want politically is also being filtered through pop culture. So most people aren't able to see the difference between where Jay-Z is doing and what Colin Kaepernick was doing. That's true. And that leads to discourse that's not productive. Right. As far as understanding the issues, because the thing is, is like what Colin was like fighting for and the way he did his uh, activism is fundamentally different from what Jay-Z is trying to do. It's not the same thing. Not it's not even aligned. So for Jay-Z to even say like, oh, yeah, we're past kneeling as <laughs> if his as if what he's doing is f- moving death, moving it forward. Right. It's not. It's not. It's not. That's but, a lie. But that's the marketing thing. I mean, it, it, I call it woke capitalism. Yeah. Or, or no, I call it I call, I call it woke economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where these companies will appropriate uh, activist language, right. appropriate all types of like, not just the language, but the energy, the vibe, the movement to make it seem like they're more benevolent than right. they are, and that they actually care about the movement, they actually care about right. stuff like that. And people will go crazy for it right. and actually like. The, the Pepsi commercial that, uh, what's the Kardashian did? Chloe? Uh, uh, was Chloe? it Chloe that it could did that Chloe. Yeah. It wasn't Kim, I know that. Yeah. I just know that. You know, this is, that, so Jay-Z is in, as I'm calling it, it's a James Brown theory of liberation. Most people don't remember that one of the very last performances that James Brown did. Now, keep in mind, he's known for Say It Loud and I'm Brackland Proud. The very last song he did was for Rocky Four. And it was when Apollo Creed got killed, and it was called Living in America. And he was dressed out with the, the, the red, white, and blue singing Living in America. And this is the greatest country alive. That's a far away from Say It Loud and I'm Black and I'm Proud. So I suspect when it's all said and done, we're going to see Jay-Z wearing a red, white, and blue hat, talking about rapping, talking about Living in America is great. As long as you're a capitalist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically it. Um, no. <laughs> so it's like to that point, mm-hmm. I did want to uh, touch on the, I think there's a lot of illiteracy uh, when it comes to politics. Uh, we, um, there's a lot of illiteracy in my generation of understanding what politics is. Mm-hmm. Understanding like not just the power dynamics, but just like what do we want to yeah. demand for? Uh, I believe it's just like people are more they say my generation is more politically active no. but in what way is it being politically active in the sense of like understanding theory understanding right. how things actually work and right. like what policy I actually understand policy right and what's the results of that and how to demand for that because the thing is like you said like a Barack Obama he wanted to appeal to everybody but the thing is is like black people are still citizens they're still groups so for joe biden to be the top person for african americans is it's concerning because it means we don't understand our position well and but it's also like you were saying earlier about class politics because some of this is reflective of a divide between working class blacks and middle class and upper class blacks yeah in this sense 
if you're there's enough cynicism amongst working class people across this country to sit out politics because it doesn't change their day to day lives. They're still struggling. Yeah. Right. So at that level, you're going to get a hit and miss in terms of the working class about what candidates are viable. Um, I would wager that among working class, you're going to see trying to gravitate more towards Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are more likely when you you talk working class politics. Yeah. But if you're, you know, middle class, you know, you got your house, you know, you're paying your mortgage, things are halfway solid, you're somewhat concerned. Your issue is, I just want to beat Trump and get somebody in there. I would like to have a black woman or a woman. You know, those kind of politics, the identity politics yeah. come into play because that's important to you. You just want to be like, well, at least we got a woman. I mean, I know we're not a perfect country, but we got a woman as president. And which that's all you're concerned with. Which is not critical, which is not right. which is not a critical way to think because, right. okay, I would like to see a woman president. Sure. Yes, yes. I would also like to see a woman president whose politics actually help that's people. The, and that's the key. That, that That's the key historically. But part of the problem is if you don't have that historical lens to see what has happened, then you'll miss out on it. And, and what I mean by that is one of the very interesting things that happens is that Nelson Mandela wasn't the most radical of the people in South Africa that were in in uh, Robben Island, right, in, in prison. Yeah. But he was the most amenable to basically putting South Africa in a situation where rather than just white capital dominating in South Africa, it would be a kind of multinational capitalism that dominate. But the working class situation of blacks and whites in South Africa didn't change. Fast forward, Clarence Thomas. <laughs> black people understood it that they wanted a black Supreme Court justice, but they thought that just because it was a black Supreme Court justice, the politics would reflect certain kind of in, ingrained issues that are pertinent to African-Americans. But the Bushes understood, I can give you a black Supreme Court justice, but he'll talk like us. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, because like there, I mean, because like we confuse like identity that with politics, with real politics. Right. And that's the problem now, like you're saying is, and I'm not endorsing Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, but I'm saying there may be issues that they're raising that are very pertinent to you, that their racial identity may be blocking you from seeing how progressive their platform is. That's a problem. Yeah. That's so, a huge Because I haven't heard Kamala Harris say anything about student loan debt. Also, her Medicare for All plan is just trash. Yeah. So uh, those are the kind of bread and butter, nitty gritty issues that we have to have serious conversations about. But if you're caught up in this symbolic identity politics stuff. Performative. Because it's not symbolic of anything because right. nothing has changed. When... Kamala Harris comes out with a Medicare for all plan that says, I'm going to, want to implement Medicare, Medicare for all in 10 years, which is very politically dumb because that implies that 
for one, she's going to get reelected. Right. <laughs> and then another Democrat has to get reelected. Right. Statistically, that's almost, that's very low right. of, that, of that happening. Right. And that's also assuming that the next Democrat or whoever wins is wants that same plan. Right. So then you really think people are going to like stick around for 10 years? Yeah. They're going to get rid of that. The spam machine. I mean, uh, what what we know is Obamacare is is a shell. I mean, it, there's not a whole lot to it, and prices are still going up. That's the thing as well. Yeah, that, that was the the idea of Obamacare originally was supposed to be universal health care, right? And we stalled. We stalled with that. With that's like the point. one of the biggest fights in America. Yeah, and, yeah. but it's like pe- people are so ill. And I don't mean to say that in a harsh way, but people are literate to like that conversation, that yeah, discourse. Yeah. People think it's just like, well, if we don't have private insurance, we're just not going to have health care. Right. Even though every other country in the world. Hey. Yeah. It's like every other country has health care without like this whole very like privatizing everything. Yeah. I, you know, I, like I said earlier, watching stuff from Michael Moore, like where do we invade next? Next can give people a kind of worldwide view of some of these issues and how they work. They actually work in other countries. Like uh, one of the things that surprised me about that documentary was uh, looking at school lunches. The idea that school lunch in high school, middle school could be actually good was like shocking to me. (laughs) Uh, Especially when I hear my son complain about, you know, school lunch all the time. But there's ways in which you can make this work. Finland, in terms of education, do you know in Finland, kids don't have any homework? Wait, really? Yeah, they don't know. Homework, they don't give out any homework. If they do, at most, homework could be 10 to 15 minutes that you would have to do. Finland has the best education in the world today. But it's by these counterintuitive ideas. We're still stuck in standardized tests as if that's going to tell us something that we don't want to just go, man, just throw out all these standardized tests. They're not telling us anything. Yeah. You know. Um, And it's creating a problem with, like, the actual students, the quality of students, because, like, the thing is, everybody's just coming to school just like the degree. Not to produce real academic literature, no, no. like get involved in academia, which is the original purpose of college. It wasn't supposed to be this capitalistic no. thing where you go to college for a job. Real crisis coming for places like NC State is how do you begin to evaluate AP courses that are taken in high school when everybody is taking them now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And most of us know that what we did in high school really wasn't comparable to taking uh, college-level courses. So just because you took biology in high school, it ain't college biology. It's not. (laughs) So how do you evaluate those kind of things? So those are real hardcore problems that people are dealing with, student loan debt, health care, that you need – a convert a real conversation about it beyond, you know, what you're seeing on TV. But that was the advantage of pre nineteen sixty eight politics. It happened in the streets. Yeah. You had to have it like your politics had to be street level. Or it had to reflect like, you know, for better or for worse, whether you agree with 
the Panther Black Panther Party's platform as a whole. They still move in the streets. They moved in the street. The, the children, the breakfast uh, children program was a great idea that ultimately got incorporated by the government and became free lunch programs. Yep. But it spoke to the needs of the community at the time that couldn't afford to get a breakfast at home. And here you had the Panther Party providing that. I mean, think about it. There were instances in which some of the news that was covered in the Black Panther Party news, I mean, newspaper was stuff that wasn't being covered in mainstream newspapers. I would also say that that's still kind of true because you still have independent media. Right. And that's the part where you got to have being tied into the machine is detrimental to you actually learning something. I mean, think about it. We have 24 hour news coverage and you could watch news for 24 hours and still not know half of what's going on in the world. Not a I can't curse. See, so you, you, because it, it really pisses me off because, uh, like, it it's so when you re, re, finally become conscious, like media conscious, uh-huh. like you understand the techniques, yeah. the, the language, the rhetoric, the way the certain images are pushed pushed into your like basically you're into your conscious and like how to use our phones, our right. TV, any type of screen to basically push an idea to. In your head, right, and you're not allowed to critically evaluate it, right? Because like, thing is, it's 24 hour news, but that segment is like five minutes, right? That's and that's if all that, you're getting that over five, and over again, looped in, so looped in, and yeah. it's it's not. They may bring on someone who who would be honest for like right. 20 minutes, but then they will cut them off because you know can't be too honest on camera. Yeah, well, and and not to plug the academy, but. Because of the setup of how the news media works, it's actually ironic that we're in the situation we're in now because so many of the discussions we're having, whether about pensions, health care, could be informed by scholarship that people are actually doing on university campuses, but not having the opportunity or the outlets to actually talk about it means that at best, you get whoever they paid who teaches at Harvard or Princeton to come on for their little 15-minute spot and give their little spiel, but you're really not getting any information. Like the depth of knowledge, right. that's the thing. Right, or oftentimes I talk about the, the difference between uh, where we're at now is that social media news coverage may give you information, but it can't give you knowledge. Because to to have knowledge, you have to be able to evaluate exactly, and like, exactly. And so, and that's the the key part is we it, just information having, information overload without critical evaluation exactly. leads to just dumb people who right. sound smart. Yep, and that that's the problem. And so, um, I don't know. I mean, what would you say is the what would you say is the average number of books that people read in college before they graduate? I would say. It's probably under, in terms of nonfiction works, the average college student is probably reading less than five books by the time they graduate, all the way through. Serious, academic, scholarly books. Like academic, scholarly books, yeah. I say it's under three. Yeah. And that includes all the humanities yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Stuff that you're being assigned in class. and Yeah, because like we, we get, um, unfortunately, because like how the system 
as a st- structured yeah we have to do articles right versus like reading actual books because like i'm guilty of this too yeah, yeah, yeah you know if you see the reading requirements is like half a pay, half right. a book or something like that you probably just like, i'm gonna drop the class because yeah. i'm not reading that much <laughs> so, yeah. just say like man damn that yeah. like <laughs> so you know there is different times i mean um it's funny i often joke about the Excuse because, me. Because, like, we, the way we interact with the literature as well is, like, very filtered. Because, like, the thing is, like, people won't, people are now, like, okay, this concept of, say, like, Machiavelli or something like that. Right, right. Uh, the Prince. Instead of, like, reading the actual Machiavelli, uh, The Prince, right. I watch a YouTube video about right. it that disseminates <laughs> the information. So I don't have my own understanding. Right, right. But I feel like I understand it. Right. And that's the key. And and that's I, that's the way that's the reason I think political organizing hasn't really advanced is because each individual actually owes it to themselves to actually think about what they wor- want the world to be f- free of the noise from the outside. Like take away all the assumptions you have about free health care or about somebody leeching off of me, taking advantage of my hard work and really think about what it is that you think would make society better or just society. You actually owe it to yourself to think that through. Otherwise, as Fela Kuti said, you're just being a zombie. I mean, we're taught to be consumers and <laughs> also in like not just that, we you're either a consumer or you're being consumed. Right. Everyone's a content creator. I mean, I'm recreating content right now. <laughs> we're creating content right now. <laughs> and that's that's the that's the that's the big thing is, uh-huh. is that we're creating content right now that is meant to be consumed. Yeah. I'm not trying to be too I don't know what's it called meta or like he- <laughs> or like too heady about it, but it's real. Like uh, we're creating content right now. Uh, just, the idea just hit me. Like wow, we're being consumed it, right now. See, see, I don't think that that I don't think that's a problem per se. I don't. No, 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 I, no. I don't think the problem is just because you're creating a podcast or just because you're see yourself and somehow engaged in an enterprise of some sort. I, I don't think that's a problem necessarily because that happened in previous generations. But if that's the end all be all of why you're doing something is, man, I'm a, I'm a drop these beats so I can make some money. Then that's the problem because there's no intention behind it. Y- yeah. You're like, where's the intellectual fire that should be driving you? Like, my my son plays trumpet for the marching band, and I'm a, I have a musical ear, so I like to listen to a lot of different music: Queen, Def Leppard, you know, LL Cool J, you know, you name it. I listen to a lot of music. But one of the most challenging things for me as a music listener is learning how to play an instrument. And the idea that you could pick up a computer and create a beat and then you got a top selling hit single really belittles what is really involved creatively in terms of creating music. Music should express something of your inner being in terms of what it is. It ain't just something like, dude, I'm just trying to make this hit song. Like 
that's why it's not even like a hit song no yeah. more. It's, it's been so watered down that people, okay, you said making beats, for example. Yeah. There's a whole marketplace for like beats, and the thing is, they're not even trying to sell out the top artists. They're just trying to sell to the local rapper, which is like, rap. so like they'll make something called tight beats. Yep. So it's uh, I encourage anyone to like Google like a documentary about tight beats and like how it's uh, made and really wired down the music because yeah. like they'll they will create a beat that's supposed to be like for Drake. It's supposed to invoke that type right, of Drake sound, right. and so like that sound becomes water down and filter right. out because not everybody's doing it. everybody's doing right. a drake type song because that's what's in right we do we do a juice world type song right we do a little tech type song like that's just what because that's what's hot right well, i mean for better or for worse i mean nat king cole ray charles Nas, even the fujis as a group it was something distinctive about what they were saying you know there's something when you listen to the Fugees that you you hear that Haitian experience when you listen to the Fugees. You hear that Caribbean experience, that New York experience that's unique to that group. And that's the part, whether it's hip-hop or not, black music needs to come back to why we were doing the music. Like, when you listen to Nat King Cole or Sam Cooke, man... Them two brothers right there make you cry on any given day. <laughs> any given Stevie the same way, man. Stevie is the one of the best writers about love and feeling. I just called to say I love you. That's so simple. That's so simple and profound. <laughs> That's very <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I went on a music thing today. But okay. We've been talking music, politics, yeah. everything. <laughs> and, and that's the thing, like it all intersects. No, it all intersects because pop culture, like we interact with politics through pop culture, right. so a lot of it is um, all relevant. That's, right. that's the funny thing about it is like you see politics everywhere, right? Um, I mean, because there was politics in everything, but you didn't see it everywhere, right, right. like we see it now, right? Like Trump has become like a meme, so like right. you see it everywhere, you see it in your like feed or whatever. <laughs> Trump has become a meme. It, 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 that's the world we live in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. that's i think that's captivating i mean it's i don't know how we get back to this moment collectively in terms of what because from netflix to amazon to spotify it is extremely difficult to get through the noise it is incredibly difficult and, and to put that in perspective, I mean, imagine whether you like Spike Lee movies or not. Spike Lee historically will go down as one of the greatest black directors in the history of film because of the range of themes that he talked about and how good he is just as a director, as a cinematographer. So the look of his films always, you know, when you're watching a Spike Lee film. You mean, you mean it's a Spike Lee joint? It's a Spike Lee joint. It's a Spike Lee joint. But now imagine that from, let's say, from the 1980s till now, very few black directors have been able to amass the catalog of films that Spike Lee has been able to do and the range of topics. So think about this. Spike Lee is one of only a few black or directors in general 
to have filmed a movie about jazz. There are no, there's only one other movie I can think of offhand about jazz. And that's around midnight. The only other one, but Spike Lee actually wrote and directed the concept of Mo Better Blues. Mm. Spike Lee invented the whole genre of doing black college movies. <laughs> yeah. Right? We uh, wouldn't have love and basketball. Yeah, you see, you see the quad on BET. Yeah. You know, so there's a range of things that Spike Lee did. But here's the problem. You can't get great movies in terms of themes the way that Spike Lee did it because he was independent. You're, you're, think about this. How many Spike Lee did the Malcolm X movie? You can debate about whether it was a good Malcolm X movie, but who else has done phenomenal work like that as a black film director? The only other person I could think of is uh, Raul Peck, but you know, he's Haitian and the type of movies he does are, are black political left movies. So he did the Lumumba movie. Um, he just recently did a movie called the young Karl Marx. Young Karl Marx. Yeah. Yeah. So Raul Peck, but his his movies, he did um, a movie about Rwanda uh, called April. April, what is it called? It's called April and something. Uh, but oh, it's very few directors that are doing the work that Spike Lee and someone like a Raul Peck are doing. So I, th I think it's just incredibly difficult to get through. Yeah. If you have the uh, it's not that we don't have the technology. We could film movies with our cell phones now. But being able to get through to the Netflix is the problem. Yeah, because, like, I mean, we do have the Ryan Coogler's of the world. Right. But, I mean, the Creed stuff is is just, you know, rejuvenating the Rocky uh I mean, yeah, but like, there's also the Fruitvale Station. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, by, yeah, like, yeah. Like, he, he still does his thing. In that in that regard, when it comes to like the Fruitvale Station, because what else has he done outside of Fruitvale Station and the Creed movies? Uh, Black Panther. Okay, it's kind of. I didn't make. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I'm, just, I'm just saying he kind of did his thing. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, the thing about Black Panther is started a whole cultural movement. Like it's just like, yeah. oh, Raul Peck did. I am not your Negro. Wow, that was him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. I, I think everyone should be familiar with yeah, that movie. Yeah. Um, and the other movie that I was thinking of was Sometimes in April, which is about the Rwanda crisis, but they're all great movies. Yeah, I think I've heard it sometimes uh, yeah. by April. It was it was another um, leftist uh, movie that uh, it was by, um, was it Sorry to Bother You? Have you ever uh, heard Oh, yeah, that? that's an amazing movie. I Personally, I think that's one of the best uh, black films has been done in the last 50 years. No Not joke really. aside, I think, like, seriously, uh, Sorry to Bother You is, like, amazing like that. I think the, the other one that just recently came out that's amazing is um, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I've heard about that. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think the concept, but it, those are the type of opportunities that I'm saying where people just throw outside the box of what our traditional black movies like. We're, we were in this period of everything being like Soul Plane. <laughs> and we ain't that far from it still, but it's more yeah, because we cor corporatized. We still get the uh, Kevin Hart movies. Yeah, we still get yeah. the... Like, Jesus. Um, we still get... 
And, but some of those movies aren't good. Like um, I thought um, Welcome Home, Roscoe Jenkins, which is Martin Lawrence film. I thought that was an amazing movie because it's about community and family. But it, it, it just never got the kind of plug in that kind of way. Um, because it, like, it was about community versus like, I don't know, like something the, stupid. The Kevin Hart stuff. I mean, I like uh, the Fast and Furious franchise for what it's worth, but we went from outlawed, uh, you know, riders. They were riding these cars as outlaws to now they're secret agents. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is insane that we're get, we're at that point. Like, we're supposed to believe that Ludacris is this uh, mastermind te- ne- technical computer genius. When he just started out with an afro, he yeah, was like, it's <laughs> like, come on, man. And I love Ludacris, but I'm just saying, like, yeah. our where we're at in terms of movies is not, I, they're not enjoyable in the same way or rewatchable in the same way that some of the older movies were. Like, um, a lot of the old Richard Pryor movies are are still watchable. Which Way Is Up, I think, is a phenomenal movie. Um, Richard Pryor actually was a great dramatic actor. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people don't think about Richard Pryor in that way. No, no, no. But like Blue Collar, Which Way Is Up, were like really amazing movies. Um, him and um, uh, Busting Loose, I thought was good. Because I think comedy, like you, the way comedy works, you have to understand drama. Yeah. Like you understand tension, things right. like that. Because comedy is basically like timing and timing, all that. And it's yeah. just like, it's like drama, but it's. Supposed to be funny. Yeah. It's, that's it's acting. Yeah. It's basically that's what it is. Yeah. Like, it's a performance. Right. And I think that's why like a lot of comedy actors can do serious dramas because right. that 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 instinct is still right. the same. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, we're running at 150. All right. So yeah, I, I think we, we <laughs> Really we, we're oh gosh. Yeah. Okay. Well you're gonna have to cut this up. <laughs> <laughs> we're going yeah, we're gonna cut up in two parts. Yeah. But, yeah um, <laughs> Well, I appreciate the opportunity, man. This has been really fun. It's been wonderful to have you, yeah. Dr. Stephen Ferguson. Yeah. What was your class again, just for the people? So, I, I, traditionally, I teach um, Africana political philosophy, and I also teach uh, philosophy of race. Uh, both of those classes are out of the philosophy department. Uh, I also do the intro to African-American studies course um, every other semester, but it, it just depends. But that's one of the courses I also teach. Dope, dope, dope. So, so this has been the second episode of the Sean Soapbox. Uh, we'll catch you next time. We're going to keep it popping. Uh, Thank you. <laughs>